Welcome to the Intriguing Beings podcast with me, Rue Chater. Episode 10 with Raphael Sal. Hi everyone, I hope you had a fantastic Christmas break and enjoyed the festive season. It's uh, a little bit behind us now, I think I'm recording this on the 20th, no, 24th of January, time seems to be flying. Um, it's been a busy start to the year. We've been working pretty hard on the magazines and also a couple of projects that we're involved in at the moment, so it's been all go. Um, Mary and I are still a little bit homeless, so we are waiting for the Welsh house to go through. I know a few of you have messaged and asked about it and also inquired about kite surfing sessions when we're there, which is nice. Um, But that looks like it might be happening soon. Currently, uh, we're house-sitting for a friend over in... Uh, near the Three Valleys, a little place uh, called Ville Martin, a friend of mine called Chris Moran, who is an old famous snowboarder. Probably hate me saying old and famous snowboarder. While I think about it, actually, I'll try and get him on the podcast because he's got a few interesting tales to tell from the days of the late 90s when snowboarding was becoming hugely popular and him and his buddies were kind of ruling the scene in the UK. So I'll definitely try and get an interview with him at some stage. Anyway, uh, moving on to this week's episode, Raphael Sal. I normally introduce people and I say, oh, they're a friend of mine or I've known them for a while. But I honestly feel like part of the family with Raph whenever I'm around him and his team at F1. And that's something we talk about in the podcast. Um, We've got a relationship that goes back all the way to about 2004, I think, when I first met him. So quite a long time. And we've been in a few scrapes together would be a good way to put it. Um, Raph organises these incredible trips abroad and I sometimes go and take photos for him or he invites me along to write stories. And there's been a few incidents along the way. Um, I've been party to some of them and I've heard about others. Uh, They famously nearly sunk a helicopter Uh, when the tide came in actually we don't talk about that in this podcast and then the infamous one that a few of you will know about was the time that we actually flipped a boat over in Mauritius and nearly died I guess is probably the right way to put it Um, essentially the island was on a red flag day which meant no boats or craft were allowed out the reef was pumping sort of four to five meter swell at 20 odd seconds and one eye was just immense you couldn't go out out there and um, Raf and the team obviously still wanted to get some photos so they gathered the photographers they drove us off for about an hour and a half into the middle of nowhere where we met uh, some fisherman dude I wanted to say dodgy guy but he was just a fisherman that Raf had persuaded to take us out so we could take some pictures Raf and the pro team went out and I remember after about an hour of driving out to this reef off the coast of Mauritius um, in this very small boat with a terrible engine uh, there were these stand-up barrels rolling in anyway I'm not going to tell you too much of that story because I think there's a whole series of funny stories that I've got myself into that I could do in a separate podcast but the long and short of it was we were out there and we flipped the boat and it all went horribly wrong since that moment um, I think I've had a connection with Raphael that not many people have in the industry and I always treat him with the utmost respect as he does me and I do consider him um, almost or I do consider to be almost a member of the family so I really enjoyed sitting down for this podcast in Madagascar when we were there 
And it was great to be able to ask him a few questions about how he runs his business, because for me, it's not just about kite surfing with Raf. It's about how successful he's been, how passionate he is and how driven he is. I think he's one of the most um, passionate people for water sports in the industry that I know. He certainly spends more time on the water testing water sports products than probably anyone else on the planet. I've often said I'd really love to get him a GPS watch that would track the amount of time he spends on the water because it's just unbelievable and that's probably one of the reasons why f1 products have reached the heights and the levels that they're at because you know you can't argue with a kite like the bandit how immense it is at what it does and that's purely down to the amount of prototypes they get through the amount of hours they spend on the water testing um Raphael's wife Sophie has a funny story about it where she calls it Raphael time and in the summer and in the testing season when it is testing time basically all Raphael does is test kites doesn't matter if there's a wedding a funeral a bar mitzvah whatever if it's windy he's on the water and he's testing gear um, so we talk a little bit about that we also discuss um, patents, which is an interesting subject in the business world and in the kite surfing world. A lot of you listening to this might not realize how patents work and when a brand comes up with something like the Delta design that Raf did, how that influences the rest of the market and how the rest of the market can get involved with things. So there's definitely some interesting pieces in here, but the biggest takeaway for me is the passion that Raphael has for water sports and the products that he creates and how as a businessman he's managed to keep his business as a family business. I think arguably they're probably one of the biggest kiteboarding companies that still run as a family company and that's testament to his dedication to the sport and his brand that he's created with his family. So without any more chat from me let's get into this week's episode with Raphael Sal. Enjoy. This afternoon, I'm sat with a gentleman called Raphael Sal, who has been, become an exceedingly successful uh, water sports person, uh, businessman, maybe. That's a little bit his wife as well, who knows? Yes. But he's um, part of the team that heads up a company called F1, who now have uh, Monera as their accessories brand, which is looked after by his son, Julian. Uh, who we've also chatted to on this podcast and and they've got into the world of foiling surf foiling sup anything to do with water sports Raphael seems to have yeah. his name attached to it or be involved in it in some way so Raphael, first question for you how did you get involved in the ocean and the water in those early uh, days my father used to be a sailor okay so i spent all my uh, early days on boats, yeah. always. Big yachts and or small yachts? Yeah, or? like 10, 11 meter sailing okay. boat we used to have. And we also had a dinghy for 70 for the summer days. Okay, cool. And we used to live in Carnot on the beach. Yeah. So I was like 12 years old, 13 years old, and the dinghy was huge for me. And uh, every time the wind was a little bit strong, we needed to be four of us to hold <laughs> it, you know. And so I had to find friends and it was a kind of a complicated to carry to the water. And then I saw one summer, I saw two Dutch guys in holidays with windsurfer, the first one we saw. 
I said, wow, this is what I, this is what I want to do. You know, you're yeah. alone. Don't, it's easy to carry. Don't need to organize friends. You can get so, yourself to the beach. Yeah, so we got one of the first ones that came in France in 76. I was going to say probably yeah, mid-70s. Early, that yeah, was super early 76. In the day. And then I start to windsurf like that. Before that, I was water skiing, sailing, but in the 70s, you didn't have so many sports, you know, yeah. it's not like today. <laughs> Surfing, you did, we didn't really have, so water ski was already the fun sport. Yeah. And then I start to windsurf, I start to do the local races, like South of France, national, international, all the way, so... I was a pro from 80 to 94, 95, 15 wow. years, doing only pro windsurf for career. And that was when Robbie was sort of up there? And yes, yeah, the best year they were the PWA, we call it already, yeah, World yep. Cup. So 95, 96, no, 85, 86, 87. Yeah, they were the biggest, uh, huge events, huge event. Yeah, we so used much to money, have so much money, sponsor. Everyone has a car. <laughs> the price money in Japan was one hundred thousand dollar. Unbelievable, it was huge. Yeah, and those years, I finished third overall. We used to have the three disciplines. Yeah, course racing, slalom, and wave, and I finished third overall in '85. Wow. Robbie was first, Alex Aguera was second. No way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be in the Tiga team yeah. with uh, Alex Aguera those days. Neil Pride Tiga was the biggest team. Yeah. yeah. Then I finished uh, fifth in uh, 86. And then the sport changed a bit. I finished uh, nine in 87, I think. And then we were doing slalom in slalom into the waves yeah and then we change and it was like fat water slalom so only the speed matter yeah not like not jumping skill, waves yeah. and uh, escaping from the white water or dealing with currents or whatever it was pure speed and then the size of the world cup rider when it's like if you were below 9500 kilo you had no chance yeah on the slalom and suddenly everyone racing. became really big like yeah and those guys yeah, were so huge those guys. guys they were huge 100 kilos so <laughs> me and alan cadiz yeah that you can see now on videos with the wings we were the first one to put some weight yeah <laughs> <laughs> and the first one to use a weight jacket and then we catch back the the big guys, but then they start also to carry weight. Wait. So then it was finished. <laughs> then I end up uh, finishing twenty, and I keep I kept doing the World Cup, but only for R and D for my sponsor. Yeah. So I was following the tour, but more for R and D testing, and that was my really speciality. And those days we used to do long distance, some speed event, indoor at Bercy in Paris. So it was really that was a crazy yeah, event. Yeah, right? that was really fun, really fun. 
And you were the number one in France, which is where F1 comes from, mm, right? I took F1 because I, wa I was one of the first to get <laughs> needed a number, you know. And those days you need to buy some uh, sticky paper and cut them by yourself. Yeah. So F1 was like easy to glue. Easy to do. Easy to <laughs> I'm do. number one. And, uh, in France, in windsurfing, we, have, we had so many champions. So many in speed in every discipline. Yeah, it was a really big sport yeah, in France, yeah, right? Yeah, Pascal Macker and people like that. Terry Theo, all yeah. those names. The girls too, Nathalie Lolière, Nathalie Simon, Arnaud de Rosnay, yeah. Jenna de Rosnay. Rosnay all the big names. Yeah, we, we were so many. So I cannot say I was the, maybe on the World Cup I get a really good result. But we were so many champions in France. In France. Yeah. Why do you think the French took to windsurfing so much? We have a lot of cost. Yeah. So we started big in France and Germany, like yeah. it is for kites too. The biggest market in Europe is France and Germany. Yeah. And it was the same for windsurfing. And the US, they surf for the wakeboard. Yeah. But they don't really windsurf kites uh, for those sports are really smaller in the US than surfing and wakeboarding. They like surf or they like the broom broom and the music. Motors uh, and motors. Yeah. <laughs> loud noises. Noises, yeah, it's true. It's uh, like that. And I uh, guess the French temperature is quite, in the summertime, it's yeah. nice and warm all yes. around the coast from yeah. Brittany all the way down to Bordeaux and in the 80s, Mediterranean coast as well. Early 80s, you you had thousands of windsurf board on the water. Really, it was huge in France, yeah. The and French market was huge. The brand in France, Tiga and Bic, they were the biggest. Yeah, Bic was yeah, huge, wasn't Bic it? Bic was huge. And then, uh, mid, yeah, 94, 95, I had to stop. So, I wanted to being the R&D team, product manager or something like this, into a windsurfing ground. But I couldn't find my place really into the the, the brand that were still there. Yeah, so I guess I, it's hard because there's only there's yeah. only a few brands and a very small amount of jobs in this yes. industry. So and if you're um, looking for a job and there's not an opening, they all fill up, you know, and you yeah. have to kick someone out. Yeah. <laughs> So I say, okay, they don't want me, I'm going to do my own brand. Yeah. And I start to shape my own uh, windsurf models. And I started with F1 because it was my sale number. And then 95 was really the worst year for windsurfing. The market was going down, it was really not good. So we start, I started too late. It comes and right at the end. At the same time, in, in my career, I was spending three times one month in Hawaii, going all around the world on the best uh, spot, and suddenly I had to stay home <laughs> in Montpellier, and it was dead flat, and all summer it's super light wind, so I said, wow, I cannot stay in Montpellier and winter for year long, it will not work, you know, I'm not used to that condition. So I started to look on what else I could do. And then I start to look at the kites and I try a powerful, yeah, it was a foil kite. 
Yeah, power kite, power fall kite. Five square meter, I think, in eight knots was really light. And wow, I was impressed by the, so the much power. power. <gasps> I say, let's do it on water because that power, if one day we can manage it, it will be fantastic. So I start to play with uh, rigid delta kite and fall kite, and that was uh, 96. Yeah. And was this on just on windsurfing boards at that time, or anything yeah, you had yeah, lying around? Yeah, you just jump on with a, a kite that you'd normally uh, fly No, I beach, was I shaping, guess. so I grabbed a surf I had in the garage, yeah. a surfboard, dark form, polyester, and I start to kite with those, and then I start to build my own design to be able to hold the kite a little bit better. Yeah, hold an edge. And then I was trying to sell my windsurf, but I was spending all my time trying to kite. <laughs> <laughs> that was tough. Huh? This is where Sophie started to worry. What are you doing? We need to hit. And <laughs> you kite all day. I have to take you back by car because you drift all day. You've been <laughs> smashed around by those kites. And we don't sell windsurf board because you spend all your days on the kite. No, Sophie, I tell you, one day it's going to be big. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me. Believe me. <laughs> one day it'll work out. And it has, I guess. I mean... So, I think January 8, 97, we, we could get in Montpellier the first Wipika kite. Yeah. That were built in China. And who did you see first kiteboarding? Where, where did you get the inspiration from? Uh, Manu Bertin yeah. was French. Yeah. And he was a team partner for me in the windsurf. And I could call him, but he was more testing in Hawaii. And we never really see it in France. And I was trying to call him, exchange information. And I do like this, and how do you do? But he, will, he didn't Wasn't want to tell me anything. So just because he wanted to be the, the only one uh, <laughs> kind surfing in the world, so he didn't work. And we had another guy, Laurent Ness, in Montpellier, that was having a, a kite shop. Yeah. And he had a power kite, and he was like a buggy French champion. Yeah. So he knows a lot about power kite. And he was trying to go into the water, but he was coming from buggy, not from yeah. wind. So he had no water sports. So skills I say, I teach sports. you the water sport, and you teach me the kite, and then we started together. And so it that was to work. good, yeah. We started like this, and it took us six months to be able to go upwind. Wow! <laughs> almost, oh, maybe more, seven months. Yeah. Crazy. And I said, okay. If in half a year we don't go upwind, the sport will never start because who's going to go down and be picked up by the car? Six months trying to learn and learn. Yeah, and learn. learn and how, how, what is the line length you need and what is the shape of the board and the technique and, and all those. That was cool. Huh? So we were in 97, the first company to produce and deliver kite surfing board so at that time you had to call f1 if you needed need a board. board and we pick i was doing the kites yeah only two brands that was it 97 we were alone so how many so boards compared to windsurfing where we were the last brand to pull out on yeah. the dead market <laughs> we were the first, first on a brand new market 
and that was the beginning of internet, the forum, and all those things. Yeah, it was really new. So we had the kitesurf.com forum, maybe. So everybody was uh, exchanging experience, how you do this, yeah. and where you can get a board. So we get phone calls from all over the world. Hey, we need nice. your board. We need <laughs> your board. So maybe the first year we sold 100, 200. But that was huge for us. Yeah. Because windsurfing was really nothing. And it was Super really difficult. just you and Sophie at yeah. that time, right? Yes. So how do you cope with you're building the boards, you're yeah. packing the boards, you're doing everything. How's that? Uh, we were producing in Thailand already okay. at Cobra. And I was shaping the board, trying to work out some graphic. But <laughs> at those days, it was easy. You know, one logo, one color. <laughs> I was doing the sales, I was doing the pro rider, I was doing the deliveries, everything. We had to do, yeah, together. That's hard work. Yeah. And um, all the while was Sophie saying, is it, is it going to take off? And you're like, yes, yes, yes it's going to yeah, take off. Yeah, that was okay. That was okay. Past 97, 98, it was, all right. it was all right. We were in the crazy market. Everybody was into kite. That was cool. And 97, I mean, that was before most people, you know, most people sort of associate kiting as starting around 98, 99, yes. that kind of time. So it was super, super early Yeah. Um, in the sport. And I guess you were just lucky in the sense that you'd tried this power kite thought, ah, oh, there's a yeah. potential here and had spent months trying to learn it and then were ahead of the game. But if the, all the windsurf guys didn't get into kite, it would never uh, happen, you know. Yeah. Because you needed all our experience to, to develop the sport. It was there, but with people from pure kiting or people that do not Maybe just try to be improved by kiting the water, but all the industry, windsurf industry, when they came out, we make it really work. Uh, yeah, much better. Yeah, and turn it into a proper industry. Yeah, distribution develop the product, produce them, everything. And when did you start doing your first kites? Nineteen eight already. We had some fall kite, eight key all terrain kite. Have you still got any in the garage? That Maybe, you yeah, yeah. Down and I should have take it out and see what it's then like. Then we had the starter uh, kite because we were really not strong enough financially to invest into the patent, the inflatable kite patent from uh, Bruno Leguignon. So I was waiting a little bit to make enough money to be able to pay the patent. But after that, I realized that all the other brands, they start and they pay later. <laughs> I was stupid, you know. I tried to make enough money to pay the patent. But the Should have done what the other Yeah, they also, they do reverse. They start and they pay later when they, they want. <laughs> <laughs> so we had the first inflatable only in kites, only 2001 or 2002. Wow. Mark 1, yeah. Mark 1. 2001. Like no, I remember that was quite a high aspect boosting yeah, machine. Yeah, like. it was like more performance in yeah. those days. Yeah, super high performance. Yeah, and then I remember coming to Montpellier. I think was it the Mark IV 
kite one yeah. with the eagle like the wings yes. graphic m5 m5 that's yes. it the m5 and so i remember it should be five for uh, five years later yeah so 2004 2004 i think it probably yeah. was 2004 because that's when i started working for the magazine and i think it was leighton bennett who was working for tkc who was your distributor yeah. in the uk we came over to montpellier and i remember meeting you guys and up until that point, I remember the brand being quite sort of Euro, French styling, yeah. like crazy colours. And then the, <laughs> the M5 was much more like, oh, like a global yeah. feel to it. Has it been, you know, tricky in those early days to kind of find your identity as a brand? Yes. I had to listen a lot and learn because the windsurfing, windsurfing brand, they had a lot of experience. But from rider to brand manager... There's a big difference. Yeah, right? it's a big difference. From rider to product manager, it's easy. But brand manager, it's another, another step because, you, yeah, you, you, think you have to think about image, communication, marketing, graphics. Um, I was really into the product. And for the first years, I didn't understand that graphics are really important. And then I get involved a lot more into the graphics. Maybe the first tribal and all those guides, they were really a lot more into graphics. Um, I had a lot of people coming back to me and said, I buy the kite because they look so good. I love the graphics. And then well, that was really not a good comment for me. <laughs> you know, you, <laughs> you should buy, to buy the, the kite, kite because, because it's good. <laughs> it's good, not because it looks good. But after they was, they were always saying, ah, and I realized after that it's a super good product. <laughs> <laughs> but they buy it because it looks good. Just because good. of the colors. So I remember this since the beginning. Now I, I learned the lesson. The graphics are graphics important. Graphics are important, yeah. Because you want to invest into something that you like in terms of color too. And then it wasn't that long after that, I think probably a number of years when you kind of changed the game of kite industry with the first Delta design, yeah, which was the Bandit. And again, I remember, I think that was the second time I went to Montpellier because mm. I went the first time and then the second time was to see the new Bandit yeah, and so that was 2007, in yeah. yeah. And that was quite a marked step away from the traditional kite designs yeah. at that time. What, where did that idea come from and what were you looking to achieve with this new concept? We, you have to remember how it was those days the early days you had completely new invention every six months it's the beginning of the sport kind of still huh? the 2000 2005 yeah so you had like revolution every year something new we went from two lines to four lines and all those big things so we needed to have our own design and something new always so the R&D was really important those days. And we wanted to have a better stability and a lot of deep power. So we start to test those uh, Delta C-shaped design. And I was really impressed by the result. So I said, we just need one model. We used to have two or three. And we well, we gonna gain everything on that one. So we also placed the patent for the Delta C shape. And it was really intense because like in June, 
beginning of June, it was uh, announcement from Nesh that they have a new design, and it was the Sigma. Yeah. New Sigma design shape. I don't know if you could call it. Yeah, yeah Sigma, Sigma shape. Yeah. Sigma shape. And one month, uh, one month after them, we announced the Delta shape, this Delta C shape, and we had the bow patent also on the market already in 2005, I think, yeah. So it was like a huge battle of uh, patent and... Um, yeah, design, kite, who had the best... Kite design, yeah. Because today all the kite, they kind of have the same shape. From far away, you don't really see yeah. the difference. But imagine back in 2005, Six, seven, you had the bow. Yeah, Cabrina crossbow next Crossbows, to Nash, Nash Sigma, with, with and, a, you know, a bandit And the bandy Delta C shape. It yeah. was really the big fight over the designs, yeah. But we were successful with the bandit. It was impressive. We doubled the sales of our kite that, that season. More than double. It was impressive. Is then it? we kick off, really. We change... Uh, Completely, yeah. F1 was really yeah, was, bigger. Yeah, I was going to get to in a second. But when you when you double the sales of your kite in a season, is it hard to manage that? Because obviously your forecast. I don't know. Your sales, we did. It was impressive. And you, yeah. you you can only get so much material, and you can only yeah. make so many kites, and then you have to sell twice as many. Like, and you've probably you, it's hard to scale up the company that quickly as well. That must have been difficult. I think in the factory where we've been. We like or we always like four or five brands in the same factory. Uh, we were going up like crazy, but someone else was go, going down, so yeah. we could took some clothes from someone. I don't know who. <laughs> Check we, out the new yeah, lucky, yeah, <laughs> lucky. They had stock, you know. It was impressive. They could produce double the the year before. That was fantastic. Yeah, and then like we said. I, after that, you know, I seem to remember, was it the Bandit 2 outsold north in Germany at the time or something like that? Like, you yeah. know, it really took off. And yeah, F1 yeah. as a brand suddenly went from one of the sort of middle Small brands middle, to the yeah. middle to suddenly like one of the big yeah. contenders. How was that? You know, how did that feel when that happened? That must have been some thinking about that's probably 10 years after you started learning yeah, to fight. Was, suddenly yeah. it's made it. But that's a hell of a long time to invest thinking it's going to Yeah, gonna it's going to happen. Long, 10 years. From zero ninety six to the bandit, two thousand seven. It's eleven years. Yeah, but we start with to start a company in France in the nineties. You need to have uh, eight thousand euro, and you could start the company. And we just add that with Sophie to start. So we really start from zero. From zero. <laughs> and when you start from zero, and you don't uh, you don't want to. Get some shareholders and things like this because I want it really to be free and take any decision I want to take always, you know. I prefer, I prefer it with Sophie to start it small and grow it, grow it, grow it without having to get new investors every year and lose money or whatever. So it's a matter of being passionate. And that's. A lot. There's not many kite companies that are in that same boat. Like a lot of kite companies have investors these days or have had investors yeah. their whole life. So it must be quite nice now with F1 at the yeah. size it is to know that you still have that freedom to make the decisions yes. that you want to make. For sure. We had to face new brand with investors or the windsurf industry 
getting into the kites and the windsurf industry they had the network already factories network dealers distributor we had to build up everything from uh, zero so it was much longer but it's okay yeah it works <laughs> out in the end since <laughs> the first day my goal is to be there in 20 years 40 years yeah it's not like uh, being number one tomorrow and then crash down yeah this is not good yeah we have to think always long long term just build the company that yeah. you can have as a legacy and yeah. still and have I a job don't know how is, i don't know how is it for the brand to have investors but sure now i start to realize that they have to take decisions that are not really good sometimes yeah. more just for the profit than the yeah. benefit of the consumer not the profit profit most of the time but the goal is most of them is to build it up no matter what way and sell it so sometimes they do strange decision because it's only to grow up the brand fast and sell it as fast as possible and we now think two generation with julian so it's we don't take the same decision if you plan it on 40 years then four years yeah it's different you're not thinking about selling it you're thinking about passing yeah, it to julian yeah. and then julian passing yeah, it on and yeah. keeping it in the family yeah. with camille and slowly nicely yeah yeah which is nice and there's always ever since i sort of first met you guys and came to montpellier that first time i always felt there was a very family vibe around the company yes. and i always love coming to visit the factory or not the factory but the offices Office. in montpellier or coming on some of your trips because everyone's so friendly mm. Is it always, you know, in your recruitment process, do you always sort of have a, a type of person that you think will fit within that F1 family and that's why it works so well? I think of it quite often. Um, in French, we say same character attract together. So it's like your friends. Yeah. If you get friends, it's because you have same ideas, same feelings, same philosophy. So every time we hire someone, he has to be in that philosophy. Uh, at the office or our provider, they all kind of have the same uh, profile. So, and then when you have a kind of that group, 5, 10, 20, now we are almost 30 at the office, you can only attract the, the people that are on the same vibe and same feelings and same philosophy. And Sometimes we do mistakes, but yeah. they, they don't last too long. <laughs> Get them out. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things I remember with the Bandit 2 was you you started this trip to Madagascar, um, which is yeah. where we are now. And we went to, I think you went to Baobami, Baobami up in the north, Anakao, and Anakao down in the south. And that was... Uh, for me as a journalist, I think it was probably the first mega trip that I've been invited on mm. to say, oh, come with this brand, we're going to do photos and show you the new gear and things like that. Yeah. And I remember that you got an incredible amount of coverage yeah. from that trip. Yeah. Was that always the plan that, hey, if we get the journalists on side and we take them to these places, they're then going to have the content to publish it? Yeah. Or did you sort of have that as a goal to help boost the brand? Because I feel like the marketing for your brand mm. went exponentially yeah. high whereas maybe at the time everyone's like what's Raf doing he's taking all these people to yes. Madagascar he must be crazy but since of the beginning of the, the adventure I will say it's so important for me to share the passion 
you know, it's you have two ways. Or you want to sell and make money and business, or you want to share your passion with your provider, your distributor, your dealer, the press, the customer too, because I spend all my life at the beach with the, with customer and I really like to share all this. So I was thinking those days, it will be so cool to have the press and share all this together. And as well, they, you guys will be so much better than I am uh, as writing the stories, you know. Yeah. That was really important to, yeah. It's tough for us sometimes to really explain all our feelings. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess because you've always it's been long. You've yeah. always been doing these trips. You know, you've done some It was big, huh? the first uh, addict movie. Yeah. And those, it was a big event, yeah. But you've been doing like you did the Pacific on the the yacht, and yeah. you like you as a as a mm. personal rider, you've always yeah. liked exploring, and you seem yes. to have this need to go somewhere yeah, where no yeah. one's gone before. I mean, yes. we're in a spot now where no one's really kited. Yeah, you've obviously invested getting the team riders over here, getting a couple of journalists, photographers, videographers, yeah. and we could have arrived. There could be no wind, no yeah. waves, and no conditions. You know, that's a risk. Well, so you must be really passionate about. You need to take risk. Yeah. We took a lot of risk in our career. Like when I we did our, the first meeting at the office, and I explained to the salesman that we're gonna have only one kite model, the Bandit, with a new patent. They, it was like impossible for them, you know, that time. So we always took risk, kind of a risk. It looks a risk from outside, but for me, it's yeah. natural. You, you know? thought about it. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I am out on the water. I do the test myself. I am not like a designer that need to convince the product manager. Product manager need to convince the salesman and the boss and everyone. It took, it's so complicated. It goes direct from the water into the product for us which is really why we are moving so fast sometimes. This was something else I wanted to talk to you about, which always amazes me about the F1 brand. And I think why, you know, your products are so good and so well received in the industry is the amount of testing that you do as a brand and the amount of testing that you personally do, because it's always been you spending the time on the water testing the kit. And I remember one year I think we were chatting at dinner and maybe Sophie was saying that oh you know come the summer months or the testing months it's it's Raphael time and there can be a wedding a funeral or whatever <laughs> yes. if it's windy then Raph can't come because I'm he's gone. testing he's yeah. got to be testing has it always been something that you've enjoyed that product cycle because some people yes, really sure. don't like trying new things no. or constantly changing their setup and constantly tweaking things yeah. whereas I, I think you almost never ride the same kite you're no. always tweaking it. yeah but it's in my uh i had i have two passion the the kite surfing being on the water and improving equipment is really something natural for me uh, i'm trying to take holidays <laughs> <laughs> most of the time it's been only about f1 f1 in kite surfing so we go snowboarding now yeah and at the end of my holidays, I said, Raph, what are you doing? You have 10 snowboards in the garage. 
you've been testing the 10 boards uh, all two weeks to know which <laughs> one is good on ice, which one is the best on power. Uh, and you mark all the bending position on <laughs> each board and you tune them perfectly each of one. You've been working for yeah. holidays. <laughs> it's like, so, yes, yeah, I cannot stop, you know. You give me something, a car or anything, I will try to tune it. And say, why the engineer did it like this? It's, it's so natural. And if I go on the water and something is wrong, uh, it's insupportable for me. I yeah, we can't do it. Call Robert, call Charles, say, we need to do this. <laughs> change it. <laughs> yeah, change it. So when I'm kiting, I'm always thinking about my wetsuit, my harness, my bar, my fins, my bore, my foot strap, the kite. So when I go back to the office, I have a lot of comments to give back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this is my passion. If you said today you're going to have a brand, but you cannot do R&D and have a R&D team, it's going to be super painful for me. Yeah. If, you, if I have to kite one year with the same kite, that is not possible. You'd like to change yeah. it. Yeah. And Mika is the same. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, we came to too. help you with testing, and now yeah. you have Robert, Charles. Yeah, Charles, we're all the same, it's funny, it's Just what like we said week. before, yeah. Yeah. You always attract the same people. That so it's like, do you want to yeah. come and work with us? Do you like riding the same kite? No, yeah. right, you can come and yes. tweak things so and make things better. Do you like to go upwind for one week every day? And <laughs> <laughs> tune some knots into the kite and inflate 12 kites every day, test them, then... This is what we do. Yeah. And yeah. you have quite a quick turnaround on your prototype processing, don't you? Like your yeah. your ride kites during the week and then is it Friday you mm, yeah. get Robert to change the design and then Monday you have new kites yeah. almost like if we design it Sunday we have it the next Friday usually when we are in full full process. And how many prototypes did you get through, say, on the new bandit range? It's always eighty proto for the new collection of Bandit. But we also have to do the other model now, because now yeah. we have more models. We need so. the one strut kite with the breeze. We need the furtive and the school kite. Halo, Diablo. Yeah, <laughs> all those. So I don't do the testing for the WTF. The kids do it with Robert. I don't do the testing for the fall kite. Robert do it with uh, the foil riders. So with Mika, we only take care of the bandit, the breeze, the furtive, the trust, the school kite. I don't do the testing for the WTF board. I, Me Too is doing a lot on the Me Too now, so I just have to follow up and check the signature and the new shadow i do it all by myself but even the sap i did the whole range yeah yeah many of the boards have been done only by myself and all the foil collection collection is done by myself and mika all the testing because a huge Surf body of work when you consider yeah. like all the different yeah. wings for the foils, the masts, yeah. and then it's it's not just that, it's the connection systems mm. and how it all goes together. Yeah. It's an incredible amount of work. But last winter, a few months ago, 
I wanted to have a better explanation of what is our R&D process because I realized that people don't really know what we do, what the other brand do. It's a little bit confusing for everyone. So we are working now on a special explanation for our R&D. I'm really, since my windsurfing career, I was like 67 kilo fighting against guys that are over 90, 100 kilo. So I always had that need of super balanced equipment. And I don't, I'm not someone that's gonna put a lot of power into the equipment to make it work. You should really, you sit in it. On, on top of it and it should work only by by itself. So it's a special things that I have and maybe some other tester, designer or team they don't have it. That need of uh, ultra balanced equipment. And I think now after 30 years, 40 years of testing equipment <laughs> Through F1, people start to understand that we have something different in what we do. Yeah. Yeah. You're always looking for that. Special. Doesn't pull you too hard, but yeah. delivers the right Super amount of power. It's easy to use. Yeah. Um, Mika is only 57 kilo. So you need that too. So both together, it's really, really important. Especially you're testing on the south coast of France. It's windy yeah, down there, right? So it's not gusty. like you guys are just it's testing in... 12 meter weather, it's you're testing fives and fours and, and super windy, gusty. And yeah, we have the worst wind you can find. So, do you when think you that helps? That, yeah, that's that you're testing in rubbish conditions yeah. and you need then the equipment to work really well rather than testing it somewhere nice and warm and sunny. Where yeah, it's we go to Cabo Verde the whole winter, but when we go back to France in March, back to testing in France a lot, we have to readapt everything a bit. And the team's grown a lot more now. And with although you're still very hands-on with the testing, it used to be, you know, Raf was in charge of everything. Do you feel like you've had to let go of a few things as the company's yeah. grown? Because you had the bandit, the one kite. <laughs> All we do is kiteboarding. Yes. And then it was like, oh, we do is kiteboarding and SUP and accessories for surf yes. and everything with Manera. Manera. And then now you've got, you know, the surf oil and everything. So yeah. is it hard to let go and just to go, okay, I'm going to trust these guys are going to work on that. The freestyle guys and Robert are going to make great yes. freestyle equipment. Yeah. Is that a difficult thing to sort no. of do? No, it's not difficult. And I have to prepare the 10 more coming years. I'm 56 and I'm still in good shape, thanks. And I can do a lot every day. But Mika is 44. He's been testing uh, with us since the Bandit one, so 13 years. So he knows everything. And now someone like Paul, Seren, after his uh, freestyle career, should start to test with Mika. And so maybe I can step off a bit and I will be able to check pass it down the generations. Yeah, but only doing the checking sometime and not doing not doing the testing for 80 proto per year for the bandy <laughs> plus the foil plus the surfboard and everything. 
that's the goal, yeah. Yeah. Robert is yeah. super good. Robert is our kite designer. He's so precise, so motivated, and so talented. And Charles for the foil design, board design is also really, really talented. So I think we have really good team. Good people around and you. And every year we get stronger too. We we learn every year. We learn a lot, which is good. So we have to improve all together. And I guess the sport's changing every year as well. So yeah, it's, it's really what we are living with foil and wings and all the the kite surfing sport is changing a lot. You really have to be aware and keep your eyes open because it can be a disaster for a company if you take the wrong decision. Yeah. Yeah, I guess especially when you're still a, not a small company in the kite yeah, world, but yes, in the corporate yeah. world, you know, yeah. in terms of size, it's um, it's still yeah. a small industry that we're involved yeah. in, servicing a small number of clients. So it's yeah. not it's you know, the wrong decision can be costly. It's really impressive the amount of question we have with Sophie every day from the staff, and the number of right decision you have to do. Because I didn't went to school to learn all this. No. <laughs> <laughs> I stopped school really early, so I learned it. You uh, same with Sophie. And then, yeah. But being the boss is taking the right decision every every three minutes. You have to take an important decision. Yeah. Yeah. That's really it's really fun. Yeah. Pick the right one. And there yeah. was a bit of a, a chapter just recently surrounding something that people listening to might not know much about. We talked about patents before. Yeah. And in the kite industry, you know, everyone's coming up with new ideas and they put a patent on it and then another brand copies it and then they tend to go and then give that brand a bill <laughs> to say, yes. hey, you know, I was this much money because you've been copying mm. it for so long. Um, and there was a situ situation with the bow kite patent mm. that was then bought by someone who then tried to enforce it. Yeah. And effectively, at the time, it could have killed the kite industry or certainly pushed the prices of kites through the roof yeah. and crushed a lot of brands. They they were trying to really ask a lot of money to to the brands and it was all the, retrospective as well wasn't it so it wasn't yeah, like was you have too. to pay us this it was like no, you owe us yeah. millions since 2005 you need to pay yeah so it was always like you owe us a million euro but you cannot ask a million euro to a kite company this is not possible for a bow patent i'm okay with patent if someone patent something and it's right, then I will pay for sure for using an idea from someone. And we do pay sometimes. And sometimes you patents. swap as well, don't you? Sometimes like... we swap between companies, sometimes we have to pay. But like the Bob patent, they were running after me with using the patent the wrong way, you know, like a troll, we call it. Yeah, like that. troll. Yeah. Well, if you come to me and you say, okay, we're going to sue you, we're going to ask you, you one million. If you pay us half a million now, it's okay. No, you cannot talk to me like this. First, you have to prove me that I am really into your idea. If you cannot prove it to me, then I will never pay for sure. And they sue us and it was really bad well, the way they did it. They came to our office with the police. No way. Yeah, like if you have a fake Rolex, that was the same. What? I know. I don't know. You call it in English. Yeah. 
and we get three police cars in the on the parking <laughs> and the what what's happening and they say we are coming with that lawyer that patent lawyer and we want to look at our kite and we think they they are in your patent so one afternoon they they stay in the office they take picture of the kite trying to make them looking like a bow kite so they were forcing yeah they were pulling the kite so it looks like bone pictures it looked like concrete trailing edge and whatever so i was pissed off i call vicier uh, you say vicier in english is the people that come to you and try to get back the money that you want to someone ah oh, like um, a debt collector or someone no or? They, you call them when you need to say, okay, I have a, my house is uh, falling oh, down. insurance. insurance. Oh, someone that comes. So I call them and they, they took a picture of the other guy taking the wrong picture so oh, I yeah. can prove that they did it wrong. And then they ask all the invoices of the year. Was like <laughs> so many invoices. So many paper we have to print and those and this. And they they said we're gonna sue you and we need one million euro. And so uh, I said okay. And it wasn't just paid. you they were doing this to. They were doing it to no, other brands. But as we well, are right? in France, you right. know, so we really are easy, uh, easy to catch. Yeah, we are in France and we don't have a company in Hong Kong or somewhere where you never get your money even if you win. You know. Yeah. So easy target. Yeah. Like a chip in the yeah. <laughs> for a wolf, <laughs> and I was really not happy. And the next day, Bruno again, you call me on the phone. I was surprised because when you start a procedure like this, it's lawyers, you know, yeah, never and you don't me. even talk together. And I answered the phone. It was Bruno. He said, "Okay, Raphael, now you must be so scared that you're gonna pay for sure." He said, I don't want to say the answer, I, I did <laughs> <laughs> But it was not nice. And then I talked to my lawyer and I said, what is the best? And they told me, the patent is, the way it is written, you can feed any kite in it. Even the kite from before the patent. So they said, it's if you go to court, it will be the decision of the judge, but it might be 50-50. Yeah. And I find it really unfair that when you write the pattern, you write it so broad, so that, broad that anyone can get trapped in you it. You can fit any kite in it, any kite design, even a C-shape could fit in it according to the, the patent. So uh, they said the best is to cancel the patent because of that. So that's what we did, and oh, it was long. Huh? I don't know how many years we spent on that. I had to go to Munich to the pot European Patent Office like three or four times, and finally we could cancel it. That, and then was, that was it. The Bo patent, and that was. I received from call from all over the world. I tell you, from and the brands, yeah, that were the also brand. being chased for the yeah, money. but also the factories. They were chasing the factory in so China. So chasing the factories for making even the if the pattern is not 
valid in China. They were chasing Still brands. chasing. Yeah. Telling them that they're going to stop the product at the border in Europe if they don't pay. Wow. Yeah. So they were trying to ask the royalties to the factory and the factory to invoice me. And all that would have done really is just push kite prices up, made oh, the sport more expensive. We were asking so everybody. much, then every kite will be like 50 euros. So more. they're doing nothing for the sport, they're just yeah, crushing it a little bit for the people that There's enjoy it. And the people that are working hard within it, they're just making yes. their lives a misery for however long. Yeah. But you won in court. It's the wrong patent, you know. Yeah. But then you won in court, and then there is no more patent. No. They, we cancelled the European patent for the bow design, and they still have the US patent okay. for the bow. But in US, when you want to start suing people for a patent, it costs you so expensive. much, then you cannot really do it for kite surfing. And yeah. the market is too small also. Yeah. In the US, compared to Europe, it's uh, five times smaller, so it doesn't worth the money. price. Yeah. So it's kind of finished. Mm. So we so can almost say we've got Raphael to thank for keeping prices. Yeah, every JK <laughs> meeting, we, we drink. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers to Raphael. Thanks. <laughs> And only valid pattern for kite design is the Delta C shape. You have pattern for safety system around, you have pattern for many systems in the industry, the one pump, the release system or whatever. But on the kite design, the only one valid is the Delta C shape, nothing else. Which is the one you guys came yeah. up with for the band. Yeah, and I don't ask money to all the brown, but most of them, they are in it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. it's okay, I don't have time, you know. <laughs> Better When things to we do. place a patent, it's more to avoid someone to do it and asking us money for someone we yeah. started. So if you've started Maybe together something, sometime, yeah. I agree. If you start something, it's good that you can have it said that you started, yes. so then in 10 years' time, no one can write a patent yeah. for it and then come after, and come your after idea, you. Yeah. So crazy. it's more protection, and sometimes, like you said, we can exchange. If we have a brand coming up with a new thing, we can swap yeah. ideas, and it doesn't cost us uh, a lot of your. Yeah, and sometimes it can be good for the sport with the chicken loop now, with everyone's mm. moved towards the sort of iron heart system. That yeah, but we pick. Boards more did, but it, it works and it's kind of almost yes. a standard, which yeah. is a good thing. So, yeah, mm. so there's benefits to it. Yeah, it's okay. It looks more quiet now with patent around in the industry. Yeah, everyone's calmed down a bit. Yeah, yeah. It's always like when you have a kind of uh, investor for coming from another world and they come into the kites of industry and they want to kill everything and be the king, but They don't really know our rules, they don't really know our world, and they dis destroy a bit everything and they disappear. Yeah. It's more and like And we wait for the next one to come. Yeah, <laughs> yeah always. there's always someone. <laughs> I'm sure. And you've always been quite passionate about new aspects of the sport. You were very early into wave riding with kites. You were early into kite surfing, yeah. from windsurfing, and then stand-up paddle as well. Mm. I know you were super passionate about and surf foiling and suck foiling and things like that. The big news at the moment everyone's talking about is the wing. And, yes. you know, I've tried it in Tarifa and here, and you are... 100% hooked on it, like you have this little yeah. twinkle in your eye whenever yes. you're talking about the wing. How did that come about and where did you first see it and why did you sort of 
think that this is going to be the new thing. When you spend all your time on the water thinking of improving equipment and imaginate new things, sometimes you cannot really test every idea you have when you wake up, for sure. <laughs> but you have them somewhere yeah. in your mind and you say, okay, I have no time for that, but one day we should do this and one day we should try that. But all our team, like Robert is full occupied, Charles is full occupied. The amount of proto we can get from the factory is not like extendable to unlimited. So you have some ideas that you cannot test, but they are there. And by being a pro windsurfer and having do all we have done into kite surfing, I, I was sure that one day we could mix the two sports and get the advantage of both. And the foil arrived, the surf foil arrived. It was really impressive already. And every time you have something new on the board, it will change the kite. And when you have something new for the kite, it will change the board. And it's a non-stop like evolution, you know. You have a, like a new engine, and now you need to change the body of the car and have new wheels because the engine is different, so, so powerful. Different, yeah. And then you have a better grip on the road and you can put an even bigger engine. Bigger <laughs> engine. It's a bit like this. You improve the car, then you change the board and, and so and so. And the, f the big foils of uh, 1200 uh, square centimeter, they change completely the power you need to, to fly. And so the wings arrived, but they were there since the 80s. We had them windsurfing in the 80s, and they used to be connected by a little piece of mastic. Right? So they came back, it's really impressive. They came back really fast, really fast. And what's the feeling that you enjoy so much about it? And then you see, when you see something new, you have two reactions. This is shit. <laughs> this is not good. It will never work. Oh, you have to go and try and make your own idea, you know. So I say, okay, let's try. It looks fun. It's small. It might be really a good combination of windsurfing and kitesurfing. And after the first days, I was really impressed. Yeah. Basically, since the beginning, if something, if I test something and I like it, 99% of the people should like it. Two, yeah. Two, normal, you know. So this is how it, it works for our product and for all the decisions we are doing. So I say, wow, this is much better than what I thought. So we get full into it this winter. It was, And it's also so good to start from zero, from scratch like Something this. totally new. Totally new totally new, you cannot know what the other brands are doing, you have to do it by your own, you cannot really see what they are doing, you cannot test uh, something else, you have to imagine everything, so it's super challenging and, uh, and you are doing so huge progression during the testing, that it's not like the bandit where it's millimeter by millimeter yeah. your progression, Tiny little the wings was like boo! Big fiesta every yeah, time. Yeah, big difference every time you get the new prototype. It's like, wow, so much better. But well, we had to get into it and 
improve it fast, be able to deliver, produce, oh, huge job. Yeah. yeah, on top of the rest. On top of <laughs> everything else. <laughs> and you were right about kiting, right about SUP when you got into that. Yes. Although that's kind of died a little bit, but then you've been hugely right about foiling. So uh, where you... I get wrong one time. Huh? You oh, remember the source? Well, the, I wasn't going to mention the source, right? Yeah, <laughs> but you should because it was kind of that light wind summer spot yeah. that could be easy for everyone and fun. That was the goal. If you look our video source, it's really it could be wing. Yeah. And it works, yeah. you know, that video. Being yeah. on the sub and cruising around in I the summer. I guess you had two lines too many. Yeah, <laughs> two lines too yeah. many, too long. But yeah. the spirit, the idea was the there. idea behind it's not so far from the wings from today beside the foil, but yeah. cruising around on the sub with an inflatable light thing that is pulling you up instead of sinking you down. It's the source. We used to ride with five or six meter line, the source. So two lines, but so close to us. Yeah. I remember it was impressive, but because every time the kite fall in the water, you could water start and stand up. Yeah, stand on up. On the board. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was like bouncing back in the sky. So the only problem was the deep power. Two lines, we didn't have enough deep power for the for the public, so it didn't work, but I was wrong that time. <laughs> <laughs> the idea was good, but the project was wrong. <laughs> so do you think you're right this time about the wing? Are we looking at the next big? Yeah, the source sport? I was the only one in the world, but the wings, we're all into it. Yeah. It's funny, huh? Everyone who seems to try it seems to really yes. enjoy it. Um, we were talking about our work with Robert, Robert Graham, our designer. And we try to think why we are in so much sport and discipline now. And, and Robert is not in the office every day. He's at home in Switzerland and he has an outside view sometimes. So I love to talk to him. He's like over 60, has a lot of experience from sailing, windsurfing, Delta plan, paragliding, he knows all those sports since so long and he's really always right on the vision of the, of the things and he said, yes, Raf, I know what is your job now. And I say, what is it? And he explained me that one day they were a company in Europe making uh, tools for draining metals. I yeah. don't know how you call it. Uh, like a lathe. Yeah, yeah, those ones. And they get in huge trouble not long ago because they get a huge competition from China, Taiwan. And then the boss came and said, okay, we're gonna build lasers to, to instead of those metal tools. And all this stuff was like, no, but we do metal tools. We don't know how to do lasers. And he said, our job is not to make uh, metal tools to shred a hole. Our 
job is to make holes, no matter what you <laughs> use, you know, laser, metal, if we have to completely change our company, our job is to make holes. So you have to build anything that can make a hole into a, a metal part. It's a bit the same for us. All we do is kitesurfing is, is dead since so long. Our job is to build toys to have fun on the water. No matter if it's a wing, a foil, a kite, uh, a windsurf board with a foil, we also do now. So it's more like uh, building toys for having fun on the water. It's not a bad way to sum this up your This is a fun culture now. Yeah. <laughs> what do you do? I build this toys is... for having fun. It's like every yes. kid's dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what we sell to people. Toys to have fun. The best and better are the toys and more fun you have. Yeah. If you go on a session with shitty equipment, your session is bad, that's for sure. If you have good <laughs> equipment, you're having more fun. Yeah, if you wait it keep you warm, if your harness doesn't hurt your back, if your kite is having the right re reaction and can hold like 20 knots of wind range, gusty wind and can do everything, then you enjoy your session a lot more. Which is perfect. Yeah, so that's our new job now. <laughs> it's not like only kitesurfing. It's all kind of toys. And I can see my our customer. They are like this now. If you open a garage today, you have a mountain bike, you have a snowboard, you have a surfboard, a stand-up puzzle, a foil, a kite. and. People don't really now do only one sport no. like it used to be in the past, like... Just surf or just Yeah, we were windsurfers and, and it's the, if you look at the new generation of riders, even the pro riders, they do all kind of sport and they can be top of the world in different sports. Yeah, Maxine, well. your riders. Maxine, Kyleni. Yeah, Kyleni, those guys. Those like guys, they don't care. They, they can grab anything on the water and be... Because they started when they were six years old and they has all those toys under the, in the garage and they could really enjoy everything. So now it's really changing a lot. And I and guess that presents some challenges because you then have more yeah. things to keep on top of. Like wow, it's not just it's you have to have a good kite range, you have to yeah. have a good foil range, sub range, kites, Yeah, everything wings. has to be global now. Yeah. You have to have uh, everything. It's like a car company. They need the coupe, they need the brake, they need the four-wheel drive, they need the family car, and you need, you have, you have to have everything. And our customer, they, they, like F1, they want to get everything from F1. You know? Yeah, you have quite a lot of customer loyalty, I find. Like if someone rides yeah. F1, they, it comes back to that thing we were saying about being part of the family. And I feel mm. when I come on these trips or when I come and see you guys, I instantly feel like I'm part of the family. And so yeah. for your wife's having a go at me for riding motorbikes and being dangerous yes. or hurting <laughs> myself or doing something stupid, I'm like, oh, she feels like my to. mother. Yeah. And it, it's almost like the, the customers that you have feel that that family connection yes. as well because they you know I, mm. I know people that ride f1 on my local beach at home yes. and i never see them on anything, anything but f1 yeah and well, you have it on the other brand too and, yeah. and it's difficult to for sure we try to keep our customer happy 
but we need to grab the customer from the from other, other brand families. Too. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Steal them across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the challenge too, huh? because the kitesurfing market is not growing. It's kind of stable worldwide. So if you want to in increase your number, you need to get customer from somebody else. <laughs> yeah. She's always the tricky thing, isn't it? I guess that's... Uh, yes and no, because we were first on foils and with like the IC6 model was such a success. Then I could see people from other brands buying our foil. Yeah. So they... They come in to... They come in with a visa card and they give the visa card for F1 product. And that's a big change in their mind. And next step, they might buy a kite or something else from us. Yeah. But and it was a good... Assimilate them into the yes, family eventually yeah. and they'll have the sap, the wing, the Because everything. you have an innovation that uh, the, the maybe the main other brand don't have, then you can get new customers. Yeah. And That's I guess what we did with the Bandit. Yeah. I In guess one year with the bell because we attract customers from Because something. you had such a good product. Yeah. You know, and that comes down to the testimony of the hard work that you yeah. and the team put in and all the testing and mm. the prototyping and the work. Yeah. And because the product's good, then when people try it, they like it. Yeah. Somehow we are in the small world, so everyone knows, you know, you cannot hide some details now. Yeah. With internet and the fast information, everybody everybody can know everything quite fast, quite quickly. Which yeah, quickly. So it's a challenge for the brands because they can know the good or the bad things. Yeah, really fast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Instantly they can know. Yeah. I really like the whole family ethos, though. I think that's probably the nicest mm. thing about what you've created as a you know, the owner and manager of the company and also with, mm. you know, your family that are heavily involved in yeah. it. And then there's team that you have around you, you know, everyone I meet from the pro riders to the yeah. graphic designers to the people in the office, you know, everyone, like you said, they've got that the similar magnetism to your yes. values and that's mm. why it works. And I think that's yeah. one of the, the testaments to F1, I think, we as a try, company. We is try it out. Yeah. A really nice aspect of it. Mm. It's Thank good. you. Well, keep doing it, Raf. Uh, we try out. Hopefully, sure. in another twenty years, you'll still be here, or Julian will be running it, yeah. and we'll just be checking all his stuff and making sure, sure Mika's doing the testing properly and yeah. telling Paul off if he hasn't designed the Bandit forty forty mm -hmm. perfectly or something like that. Yeah. Um, but yes, thank you, Raphael. Thank you, Ru. That was awesome. A pleasure to, to have you around. I'm yeah. sorry you hurt your feet. Ah, it's just my luck, isn't it? It's crazy. You could <laughs> wing only one time. I wanted to see you crossing the lagoon. I wanted to get it so bad. Yeah. But ah, well, there we go. When I get home and when my foot is better, yeah. I'll be winging for sure. But I think it's important. In 10 years... We will remember that you have discovered the wings in yeah, Madagascar. For sure, you never forget. 2019, all together. It's important for myself to see how you like it, you don't like it, what is your feedback about it. It's uh, it's cool. Thanks. Well, 10 let's years' wing. time, we'll look at it. Let's yeah, let's, wing. let's go winging. Except I'll go off and do something it's else. It's your last day. It doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> you want to go? There we have it, episode 10 in the bag. Uh, I always say I'm going to be better at getting these out, but let's be honest, uh, I'm not. So I will do my best to get another episode out in the next couple of weeks. 
and see where we go with that. There's a lot going on the next couple of weeks. Magazine deadlines, three of them are looming, so we'll see how that goes. And um, hopefully I shall manage to get some more podcast content online. As ever, I think quality is better than quantity, so I'd rather put out a really good episode than try and rush an episode out every week and just have some chat going on that's not really that interesting or not really that helpful to you hopefully from listening to Raphael and I talking it inspired you a little bit about how you can perhaps run your business or work within your job or look at ways you can become more passionate about the water sports that you do and try and focus your life around those passions and enjoying yourself as much as humanly possible because let's all be honest we've all got jobs to do and we don't all have the the time that we'd like to afford to many of these things anyway as ever, if you could give me a like and a share, there's been some rave reviews on the various uh, app stores. So thank you for those. Um, it's out there on all the platforms now. So just give it a like and give it a share on Facebook, social media, Instagram. Tell your friends about it. Let people know about it down the pub. The more people that are listening to these, the more I get inspired to make more of them and the more I'll continue to do so. I've still got about 15, I think, on a hard drive that I'm trying to blow the dust off. So I'll keep working away at that. And as I come across interesting people along the way, I will try and sit them down for a quick conversation. Anyway, thank you very much for tuning in. You've been listening to me, Rue Chater, and the Intriguing Beings podcast. <laughs>